I want to start by reading some classic literature. Some of you who are educated in the classics will recognize this preamble. <clears throat> Space. Do <laughs> you recognize it already? Space, the final frontier. That's right, that's right. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. So anyway, that's an old television program. There's uh, Captain Kirk in the middle and, uh, let's see, Spock and Dr. McCoy. Yeah, there was a whole bunch of characters. I don't know why that show is so popular. It was just it was wildly popular. In fact, I don't know, they're still making Star Trek today, aren't they? It just goes on, and this was, you know, this came out in the 1960s. I think, uh, I think that the reason that I like Star Trek is it allows me to experience the excitement of uh, exploring new and sometimes frightening worlds without actually being in any danger myself. <laughs> and, uh, but sometimes I think about Star Trek and I think the world that we live in today is increasingly a strange new world for me. I want to talk about what it's like to stand on the threshold of a new and frightening future. And I'm going to use the Israelites as my illustration. When Israel stood at the threshold of the promised land, but they were afraid to enter, they let, they let their fear outstrip their faith. And even when God eventually led them into the promised land, they often failed to live according to his laws. But I'm also going to talk about how God himself came to their rescue to live the life that they could not. They couldn't make their hearts work right. So you know what he did? He gave us new hearts. And today Jesus is changing our hearts and making us complete in him because as we face a new world, I, I know that in my own strength I'm going to fail. But God has promised to carry me through. That's the sermon in one minute. So if you need to leave... You got other stuff you need to do today. I understand. You can go. I won't look. I'll fubble stuff up here and you can go. If you want to stick around for the long version, here we go. Okay, well, remember this decision half an hour from now when you're thinking, I should have got out of there when he said I had the chance. All right. Unlike, unlike the Starship Enterprise, I am not exploring uh, alien planets. But all of us, are, are, we, all of us face new phases in life new worlds. For some of us, that could be parenthood. How are you going to raise these kids in this unusual and strange culture? For some of you, it could be facing retirement. You're thinking, what's going to happen when I pack up my desk for the last time and head home? Some of you are watching your children grow up and move out of the house, and empty nesting is your strange new world. Maybe you're middle-aged, and suddenly you're facing an unexpected illness. Maybe you're moving across the country for some new job or to attend school. Or maybe you're facing your own mortality. Each of us uh, 
has either been at that kind of threshold, or you are now, or you're going to be soon. But I'm going to use the example of parenting. Just, I'll just start with the example of parenting as my strange new world in 21st century America. I don't think I'm the only one, I don't think I'm the only one who essentially, over the last five or ten years, feels completely ambushed by how quickly the culture has changed. That's the best word I could come up for this. Honestly, guys, there are times I feel like this is not the society that I signed up for when I agreed to marry Megan and raise a bunch of kids. Things have just changed so quickly. Sometimes I, I catch myself thinking, and that, this isn't a right thought, sometimes I just catch myself thinking, I wish I was raising kids even 30 years ago. Not that life was perfect, you know, in the 80s. You know, I, there were, we had our problems. You could see the signs of, of cultural degradation at that point. But you didn't get the sense that the whole society was going to disintegrate around you in the next generation. Because in a single generation, many things have gone from being unthinkable things to being unquestionable things. There were certain things that they were once so taboo as to be unthinkable are now so accepted that we are not allowed to question them. Whether that's uh, sexuality or race relations or personal responsibility, I'll, give you, I'll just give you two examples of why this is a strange new world for me. One of them is sexuality. In 1989, Andrew Sullivan wrote the first op-ed in a major U.S. newspaper arguing that gay marriage ought to be legal. 1989, he wrote the first one in a major U.S. newspaper. And at the time, Andrew Sullivan was considered beyond the fringe, a wacko. Who would think that? Now here we are. That was 1989. Today, a majority of Americans see legalized gay marriage as a positive thing. As a positive thing. In fact, uh, according to the Supreme Court, it is a constitutional right. Now, this thing which used to be unthinkable is now unquestionable. Opposition, or to be honest with you, even ambivalence to this issue is considered beyond the fringe. And this is having a serious effect on children. Washington Post came out with a survey in March of this year that said 21% of Generation Z, you know what that is? That's you guys. Generation Z would be uh, also known as the Zoomers. Did you know that? <laughs> That's right, you're the Zoomers, Generation Z. Generation Z is the people who are currently in their teenage years up through their early to mid-20s. That's Generation Z. Washington Post says 21% of Generation Z identify as LGBTQ. 21%, that's one in five. One in five of that generation identify as LGBTQ. And that number is increasing every year they do the survey. Honestly, it feels like sometimes I'm being asked to raise kids in an alien planet. Which, by the way, and this is off the point, but thank God for this church. I mean, praise the Lord that there are people here who are helping to raise the next generation. I, I'm just, I, I can't name names because I'll start to get emotional, but I'm just looking around and thinking, praise the Lord that we are here. Can you imagine trying to raise kids in this culture without the benefit of a Christ-centered community? 
Here's another example. Technology. The way people use technology. In the 1980s, MIT psychologist Sherry Turkle, you ever hear of her? I haven't either. I haven't either. But she was a psychologist at MIT in the 1980s. And she looked at the growing popularity of computers. Hey, there's this new thing called computers coming out, right, in the 1980s. And he, she made this prediction. Computers won't just be a place where we go to do calculations. The computer will become a place where we go to live. Oh, that was prescient, wasn't it? And then she wrote another book in the 1990s, a decade later. And she said, the computer will not just be a place where we go to live, it's going to be a place where we go to explore alternative lives. Hey, you're a lonely 65-year-old man, go on the internet and pretend you're an 18-year-old woman. That kind of stuff. Her latest book is called Alone Together. I don't know, I don't think this lady's a believer. She's just looking at cultural trends. She's written a book called Alone Together where she's talking about people being so used to living online, so used to living vicariously through social media, so used to having all of their relationships mediated by technology, that the next generation is at a breaking point. And the breaking point is this. Will our children be able to relate to people, or will they choose artificial intelligence for their deepest relationships? I know that sounds like science fiction, right? People falling in love with robots, and that's it's like Star Trek stuff. But you can see this happening. I can see this happening with my own students at Michigan State, who would rather text each other than talk to each other. They'd, post, they'd rather post a 30-second video on TikTok than have a cup of coffee with somebody. And I've, I've, I've talked to some of them about this. I said, why, why would you prefer to sit next to somebody and text them as opposed to talk to them? And the answer that they give me usually is around the lines of, well, technology is safer. It's more controlled. See, if you and I have a conversation face-to-face, -face, you, you have to see the real me, and I have to see the real you. But if I'm texting or tweeting or posting, those things allow me to control what other people see. They allow me to set the level of vulnerability as low as I want to. What effect is that going to have on our ability to raise kids who are vulnerable to the leading of the Spirit? So anyway, sexuality and technology, they're just two examples of rapid, monumental changes in our society. They're examples of things that, frankly, they sometimes make me afraid to raise kids. I shouldn't say that, I guess. I'm sorry. That's a lack of faith. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But they make me afraid to raise kids. Anyway, whatever your new land is, maybe it's not parenting, maybe it's one of those other new lands, you've got to be asking yourself this question, will you succeed in navigating this new land? So I started thinking about another group of people who were afraid to live in a new land. People who had been led by God at a particular time to a particular place, and the place they were led was Canaan, and the people were the Israelites. Which leads us to Deuteronomy chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I'd really encourage you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, because I don't think it's in the bulletin. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is a pivotal moment in Israel's history. They're on the threshold of the promised land. They're ready to embrace a new and frightening future. And Moses is going to talk to the people. What's Moses going to talk about to the people? Is he going to talk about military strategy? Is he going to talk about practical tips for living in a hostile culture, 
uh, how to raise kids in, a, in an ungodly society. Well, maybe a little bit. Not, not really. The main thrust of, of Moses' pep talk, as it were, is God's faithfulness and our tendency to forget that. And as I stand on the precipice of what I think is a strange new world, I need to remember those two things. God is faithful, and I tend to mistrust him. So Deuteronomy chapter 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan. That is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizabah. I, I don't know how to pronounce these words. I'm just saying them in a way that sounds good to me. Then we got this, uh, in my Bible, it's, it's a parenthetical comment. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barana by the Mount Seir Road. Why is that in there? Why, why? 11 days. You know how long it took them to make that 11-day journey? 40 years. It took them 40 years. That's why it's in there. Hey, it's, a, it's an 11-day journey. In the 40th year, boy, that's a long time to make a journey. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded concerning them. See, this is the second time that Israel has been to Kadesh Barana. The first time they were there, this was the spot where, you remember this story, Israel is told to go into the promised land, and they say, well, I hear you, God, but let's send some spies in first. And they sent the 12 spies into the promised land. And what happens? 12 spies come back from the promised land, and 10 of them, uh, they say some things that kind of scare the people off. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, Joshua and Caleb come back and say, hey, this, it's great, God's going to be with us, let's go in. But the other ten spies, they kind of give a bad report. Uh, just a couple of, of highlights from this scene 40 years ago, Numbers 13, 27. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. Or uh, Numbers 13, 31. We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those who are living in it. The land devours those living in it. If I had to put my fear of raising kids in this culture in one sentence, that would be it. That they will be devoured. Physically, emotionally, and eternally. Now Moses is saying, guys, this is what happened 40 years ago. And at that time, I reminded you of God's faithfulness. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Come on, Abe, don't be terrified. Don't be afraid of this. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes, and in the wilderness, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way until you reached this place. And then this terrible testimony. Nevertheless, you did not trust in the Lord your God. Despite the fact that we have seen that God's word is true, we will not trust him for great things in the future. God had consistently proven his faithfulness to Israel. They could not point to one instance where he had let them down. And God would carry them like a father carries a child until they could find rest and safety. And yet they answered God's faithfulness 
with rebellion, murmuring and muttering unbelief. They were not persuaded that God loved them, and that made it hard to trust God. I don't think it was so much Israel's sin that kept them out of the promised land. It was their unbelief. Now, I know unbelief is sin, but it's a, diff it's a different kind of thing. Israel's sin could have been atoned for by sacrifice. But their unbelief in God, their doubt of God's love for them, their doubt of God's control made it unable for them to trust him. And that's why they couldn't go into the land. And you know the rest of that story, it took them 40 years for that generation of unbelief to die off. Die off. These people were afraid that the land would devour their children. And God says, guess what? It's your children who will enter the land. You will not enter the land. Irony of that. Now that generation, the next generation, to keep the Star Trek thing going, the next generation stands at the threshold of the, pro sorry, the promised land. Now, Moses is going to give the people, uh, he's going to instruct the children of Israel how they are to live in this land. And he spends the next 28 chapters of Deuteronomy teaching them the law, reminding them of God's faithfulness, telling them how they're supposed to live, what they're to do, what they're to avoid, how they are to walk, what ethics looks like. And as you read Deuteronomy, the narrative tension is building here. As the people of God finally enter the promised land, Will they walk worthy of their calling? Or will they fail like the previous generation? Will they stand firm against the attacks of the enemy? Or will they succumb to temptation and ultimately fail? Well, we don't have a lot of time. So we're just going to skip to the end. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28. Moses says that if the Israelites do not follow God's rules for living, he says... If you do not carefully follow all the words of this law, which are written in this book, and do not revere his glorious and awesome name, well, then a whole slew of curses is going to come upon them. And the worst, the very worst thing of all that could happen to them, Moses says, is that if you do not do these things, then you will be uprooted from the land you are going to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will worship other gods. That is, they will become captured by the culture, and they will become worshipers of that culture's gods. Boy, does that sound familiar. But maybe they'll be faithful. Maybe they'll find a way to live in this land. But Moses has some bad news. In Deuteronomy 30, I think this is where the part in the bulletin starts to pick up. But if you have the Bible, we're in Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, Moses is wrapping things up. And he says, When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations... Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait. Now, if I'm listening to that... Wait a minute, Moses. Wait to say that again, brother. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. So it's a done deal, Moses? We're going to be dispersed? We're going to be exiled when the Lord your God disperses you among all the nations? In other words, the Israelites are going to fail. They're going to bring all the curses of the covenant down upon themselves. The worst thing that God said could happen to them is going to happen to them. It's a bummer. 
kind of like Moses is the worst motivational speaker ever here. <laughs> they say, let me point this out to you. You're going to fail. Yep, you're not going to do any of this stuff I'm talking about. You're going to fail, and you're eventually going to be dispersed and exiled. Tell you what, if I was paying for that motivational speaker, I'd be asking for my money back. You're telling me, Moses, that even with all the instructions, I'm going to mess it up? I can't succeed? Thanks a lot. Here's the thing, guys. I know what to do. I know what God's word says. I know he's been faithful in the path, past. I know I should trust him for my future. But there's times I don't do it. My fears grow larger than my faith. It's a Romans chapter 7 situation here. I don't understand myself. This is the Apostle Paul writing. This could have been any one of us writing this. I don't understand myself. What I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, that I do. That I do. Moses knows that all his preaching, all his exhortation, all his law giving, it's all going to be useless unless the people get some outside help. It doesn't matter how much he reminds them of God's faithfulness or how carefully he explains instructions for right living. To live in this new and frightening land, the people need a power beyond themselves. Which is why, after telling the Israel about their certain failure, Moses gives them good news. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that Moses is preaching the gospel to them in this passage. Verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Boy, that is life-giving. Now, what is all this about circumcising your hearts? What does that mean? It sounds a little bit painful, if I'm honest. Kind of Old Testament sounding and slightly violent. Circumcise my heart. You know what you should do whenever you come across one of these things in scripture that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You've got to let the Bible interpret itself. Let scripture interpret scripture. So we're going to look at another passage that talks about the circumcision of the heart in order to help us understand what Moses is saying here. This is the passage that Marcia read this morning, Colossians chapter 2. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. So if you got the Bible, I know we're flipping all over the place today in these, these books, but that's okay. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been made complete in Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. In him, here we go, in him you were also circumcised, in the putting off of your sinful nature with the circumcision performed by Christ and not by human hands. Whoops. There we go. <laughs> not by human hands. And having been buried with him in baptism, you were raised with him through, the power, through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. To have your heart circumcised, apparently, according to Paul, to have your heart circumcised means to be raised to new life. To live by God's power alone. In our own strength, we're going to fail. So God lifts us up. We break God's covenant, so he keeps it. Our sin separates us from God and sends us into spiritual exile. And God does whatever it takes to bring us back. 
And what it takes is the death of his own son. Here's the thing. I can't raise my kids right. I can't ensure that they walk through this scary land and come out unscathed. I can't be the perfect father who carries his children against the cultural current. In my strength, I'm going to fail. I'm sorry, Paul. I can't do it. But I'm starting to learn that that's okay. Because it's not I, it's not me who's going to circumcise their hearts. It's God. It's not me who's going to cause my kids to love Jesus. It's God. I can carry them, and I'm going to stumble and fall. But God is going to carry them all the way. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. Now, wait a minute. After I quoted an old song last time I preached, Margie came up to me and said, How come you never sing the songs you're always quoting? <laughs> you know, great is thy faithfulness? All right, well, let's, let's sing a little bit. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassion, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Yeah, that's good. Thou changest not. Martin Luther wrote that. It's interesting, when Luther thinks about God's unchanging nature, what's the characteristic of God that he thinks about? Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. I think that's so fascinating. Of all the things Luther could have thought about that was unchanging about God, his justice, his righteousness, his control, his... his, his uh, the fact that he is everywhere, there's a theological term for that, but I'm blanking out on it. The thing Luther thinks about is his compassion. His compassion, they fail not. Hey, if you're standing at the border of some new land, you've got to wonder, will I make it? Will I succeed? Will I get swept up in this culture? Will my faith remain strong and mighty? Well, here's the good news. You're going to fail. In your own strength, you're going to fail. And then God can really get to work. He can really get to work. Listen to this. This is from Colossians 2:19. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all our trespasses. Having canceled the debt ascribed to us and the decrees that stood against us, he took it away nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. When you were dead, it's not an if, it's a when, when you were dead. And that should be freeing. Boy, God knows you're going to fail. He knows even with all the instructions, you can't make it on your own. And in some sense, it doesn't really matter because he triumphs over your failure. It is so tempting for me to get upset and dismayed at the culture around me, to fear that it's going to devour my children. And when I'm afraid that I'm just going to mess things up 
and I'm going to stumble. I remember this. Yes, I will fail, but he never fails. By myself, I am incomplete, but in Christ, I am complete. I am complete. Colossians 2.9, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. You have been brought to fullness. Are you kidding me? I'm, I've brought to fullness? I'm complete? I don't feel like it. You are. You are in Christ. You know, Paul wrote the book of Colossians. In part, he wrote the book of Colossians to address some false teachings from the culture that were seeping into the church. And yet, if you read the book of Colossians, you notice Paul doesn't really analyze and debate the culture. He doesn't talk about the insanity of how fast life is changing or try to give people advice for living in this scary world. Instead, Paul talks about the perfection of Jesus. That's what's real. We just sang that this morning, didn't we? Do not be moved by lesser lights and fleeting shadows. That's what's, that, that's lesser, that cultural stuff I talked about, that sexuality stuff, that technology stuff, at some level, those are lesser lights and fleeting shadows. You are God, and I will trust in you and not be shaken. Lord of peace, renew a steadfast spirit within me to rest in you alone. As soon as you are born of the spirit, or to use Moses' words, as soon as you as soon as God circumcises your heart, you are connected with all that perfection, all that completeness, because the Holy Spirit has entered your heart. If your heart is circumcised, you have a heart to serve the things, to, you want the things of God. You have the courage to serve him in this hostile world. There are giants in this land. The spies were right. There's giants in the land. But God goes before you. If you are in Christ, then he imparts to you. You have the love of Christ. You have his own life, his own purity, his power. I want to close by looking at a little phrase, just a little phrase I passed over a minute ago. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What's that about? All the fullness of the deity. I've been reading my kids this book. It's called Theology. Theology. It's pretty much what you'd think. It's a theology book for kids. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I think this was another recommendation from Pastor Matt, and I, I got this book. This is a great book. It's a theology book for kids. It talks about the essential things you need to know about God, about being human, about sin and redemption. In fact, it's supposed to be a book for kids, but honestly, it's a great book for adults. If you, if you, we, we could get you a copy of this if you want a copy of Theology. It's Marty Markowski. It's a great book. I'm just going to read two things about what the fullness of the deity implies. That God is in control and God knows everything. This is quoting from Theology. From the grain of sand tossed by the ocean waves to the stars and the far reaches of the universe, God, like the conductor of an orchestra, is at work directing each part of his creation. Nothing moves without his command and nothing happens outside his control. He commands every rain shower and snowfall. He tells the flower buds to bloom and the ocean waves to roll. No one, not even the angels in heaven can stop God's work in our world. Every minute of every day, God holds the universe together by the word of his power. God is keeping his creation steady 
so that everything works according to his plan. He knows your name. He planned where you would live. He could tell you any morning the number of hairs on your head, which I was reminded recently are becoming fewer <laughs> with every passing week. So that part of God's job is getting easier. <laughs> he, knows, he knows the exact number of days you will live and how each one of them will go. Nothing ever surprises God. He always knows what to do. God knows what will happen tomorrow, what time you'll wake up, what you're going to eat for breakfast. He has already planned how to use everything in your life for good, even things we don't want to happen. How can God know all these things? Because he is God. God with a capital G. That's from theology. You know, God planned. He planned that Megan and I would raise kids in this place, in this culture, in this time in history. It's no use me wishing I was raising kids some other time. That's silly. It was God's plan that it happened now. He has planned your new job, your next phase in life. He has planned your retirement, your choice of college, your sickness, even your death. He's all-powerful, and he is in control. And he's near. I love this quote from Karl Barth. I don't agree with everything that Barth says. Some of the stuff that says is, I'm not sure about that. Just like I'm sure in this sermon this morning, you're thinking, I don't know about that. But I love this quote from Karl Barth. God is with us, meeting us as redeemer and perfecter at the threshold of the future. Whatever the new land looks like for you, whatever threshold you're on, whatever giants live in that land, God is there. He stands at the borderlands, and he will carry you through. So feel free to fail. You will find both salvation and completeness in Christ. We're going to transition to a time of communion. So as the worship team comes up and the guys serving, think about this. The communion table is a place of remembrance. To remember what Christ has done for us. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. He died for us in order that we could have our hearts circumcised by the Spirit and unite us with all the fullness of the deity. Maybe this table for you is a place of hope. Hope, because he longs to carry you as a father carries his children. And he will carry you, he will carry you until that day when we see him face to face in the promised land. Just take a moment and meet with God silently in your heart. Admit your fears. Confess your failures. Ask for his spirit to change your hearts. And then we'll come and share this table and we'll take the bread and cup together once everyone has been served.